You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Uh, Co-hosting this episode today with me, uh, alongside me, is our chairman and chief investment officer, my dad, Bill Smead. Dad, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having us and doing a great book. I'll give Bill a lot of credit for this, uh, for finding this book and really becoming a champion of it um, uh, in our firm. And, and we've talked a lot about it off of uh, his um, reading and discussion. Um, so I know he's excited for our discussion today. I'm glad you could join us for this podcast. Um, we're going to talk about some great corporate histories and the confluence of business and government. Peter Dorn is joining us to talk about his book, Breaking Rockefeller, the incredible story of the ambitious rivals who toppled an oil empire. We believe this is a timely discussion in the context of where we are at today in corporate and political America. Peter is a recognized expert on international affairs and national security. His articles have appeared in Foreign Policy, Defense News, National Review, The American Spectator, and The Journal of Energy Security. His analysis and commentary are regularly featured in U.S. and European media, such as Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, and Newsweek. He holds a master's degree from Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service in, in the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies. Um, Peter, thank you for joining us. We love asking authors this question to start. What inspired you to write the book? Oh, I love it. Uh, I wanted to, uh, thanks again, guys, for having me, Bill. I wanted to thank you in particular. You, you have been a champion of this book. Uh, you and I had a chance to talk about it when it published. And uh, I think in our conversations, we continue to come back to this idea of the consolidation of capital. And that's really why I wanted to write it. First, I wanted to write a history that I wanted to read nonfiction history that reads like fiction, a, a gripping page turning story with larger than life characters, uh, huge gambles, epic fails, rallies and comebacks, uh, bitter rivalries and competition. And it's funny because at the end of Breaking Rockefeller, uh, I talked about where we are today and I said, look, there is a fight coming between Russia and the European Union over energy. And, you know, we're talking about a podcast about books with legs. Uh, many years later now, we are now seeing that fight and it's playing out in real time. And that's why I think our conversation here is important. So uh, I'm looking forward to rolling up the sleeves and getting into into it with you guys. Yeah, I agree. And just uh, just so everybody knows, uh Peter, you're joining us from, you're in the D.C. area, aren't you? That's 100% correct. I'm here in the swamp, uh, and uh, I've been here in Washington uh, for 20 years, but uh, I was born in Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. I graduated from Arizona State University and went to Georgetown, and I've spent 20 years now in the policy trenches uh, trying to take big ideas and make them a reality uh, through the policymaking process. 
to introduce us to John D. Rockefeller as the king of Broadway, you wrote, you, you, I'm going to pull a quote out from your book. During one revealing encounter on a Cleveland streetcar, a ticket attendant once charged Rockefeller for a female friend beside him. Teach our listeners about what happened following uh, you know, him getting charged for this lady next to him. You know, it's one of these moments that I love. Okay, so you have to go back in time uh, and you have to remember that John D. Rockefeller would eventually become the wealthiest human being who's ever lived, even more wealthy than anyone who's alive today in our own time. Uh, and he's on the street corner, uh, streetcar, uh, and the ticket taker is coming through. And uh, there was a, a friend of his who was sitting next to him. And essentially, the understanding was John D. Rockefeller would pay for her, her ticket. And he didn't. Uh, and uh, his point was, I don't have to pay for you. Uh, you know, a, a penny for me is a penny for me. And I, I thought this was interesting because typically when you're trying to tell a story, you, you show something good about the person. You, you give a, a reader an insight to say, look, they might do terrible things in the story I'm about to tell, but ultimately they're a good person. Uh, at the end of the, the day, money was what was most important to John D. Rockefeller. Uh, and he saw the collection of personal wealth uh, as one of the highest goals any human could attain. And the more money he made, the more he thought that God was smiling upon him and encouraging him to continue doing what he was doing. But ultimately, this meant destroying the lives of other people, destroying his competition, uh, and thinking to himself that he was the hero of his own story. So it's a lot like Darth Vader thinking that he's the hero of Star Wars, when in actuality, he's the real villain. Isn't that kind of ironic today, where uh, the people providing the least expensive energy are being demonized? Uh, it, it, when you think about how positively he thought about that. Uh, can you go on a little bit more and talk about him as a man and, and, and uh, give us more view into, we, we, we know he's an incredibly cheap uh, person to a ridiculous fault. Give us a little more color on him as a human being. The first and most important thing to understand is Rockefeller was brilliant. Uh, he was also savagely opposed to competition. Uh, and thirdly, he, um, he liked to speak softly and let the power of his shares speak for themselves. So those are the three ways I really think you can understand Rockefeller and understand and apply it to, to our own time. So go back in time, go to the first oil boom in the history of America in Pennsylvania. Uh, you've got all of these oil boom towns uh, piling up along the banks of a place called Oil Creek, Pennsylvania, which was where oil was first found in tremendous abundance in America. And, Rock and it was a mess. I mean, it was the worst of all mineral rushes, the worst aspects of gold rushes were happening right there in Pennsylvania. And Rockefeller saw this and he, he made it his personal mission to understand it. And he talked to everyone and he learned from them. And what he realized is that there was a, a danger that this industry faced and that danger was in itself competition. So rather than trying to control the entire energy industry in Pennsylvania, he realized that he could focus on one choke point the refining sector. Control that and you can control competition. And so he created all of these sort of self-narratives and, and, and 
mythologies and stories that he would tell to explain his mission to destroy competition in the energy industry. But ultimately, it was because he saw it as an enemy and not as a creator of great efficiency, which is how I see it and most modern economists view it. What was the original use of oil um, versus, to your point, you know, what, what in turn was, um, what was gasoline and, you know, created for in the refinery? Yeah, well, here's, here's the thing. I mean, we had a problem in the 1860s. The global energy market, the light, home lighting market had a problem. And that was human beings were hunting the whales to extinction. Uh, by the time that uh, uh, one of the early prospectors uh, in um, a self-proclaimed colonel uh, in Pennsylvania st struck oil there along Oil Creek, uh, whale oil was running tremendously high. The price of whale oil would bankrupt you uh, to light your home if you were poor, even middle class. So uh, the market was sending its signal. There's not enough whales left in the world. Stop using light. Uh, stop using as much as you are. Uh, and then we saw, boom, hydrocarbons erupted into the scene. Uh, crude oil is disgusting. No one wants to touch it, taste it, smell it, be anywhere close to it. But everyone needed it to light their homes as an alternative to whale oil. So that was the original you know, launching point uh, for the hydrocarbon age. Uh, and as time would go on, we would eventually use it for internal combustion engines. And, and this would become the fuel that would quite literally power the blitz into the modern era. So how did Rockefeller get into this oil business originally? Well, he... Uh, he had some savings. He was a goods grocer. He had a partner and uh, they realized that selling the new light of kerosene was actually their best product. They had the highest margins on it. They sold the most of it. They were making the most money on it. So uh, Rockefeller decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to I'm going to buy out my partner and then I'm going to just go two feet in first into the refining business. So, so that was it. Um, systematically, Rockefeller went around after he had his first company and started buying out his competition. There was one moment in Rockefeller's history where he decided, this is it. I am going to buy out all of my competition. And so he systematically, over the course of several days, started buying up all of his struggling uh, competitors. He was buying so many companies during what we now call the Cleveland Massacre, the massacre of all of the refiners in Cleveland, that the banks of Cleveland were quite literally running out of cash because Rockefeller was drawing so much of it out of their vaults to buy all of these companies at once. In the end, he ended up owning all but two of Cleveland's, I believe it was 40 refiners. And this was the beginning of his long march to become Standard Oil, his long march to dominate the global oil industry and control, at the end of the day, somewhere between 80 and 90% of all the oil on the planet. In the process, uh, you teach us about the other major oil companies being developed in the 1800s. So tell us about Marcus Samuel Jr.'s route into the oil business, uh, starting out as a wealthy merchant trader's son. What was the original family business? And teach our listeners about his importance. Okay, so Bill, this is actually, you know, you we started the, the discussion asking, why did I want to tell this story? And 
truly it's this character, this real life character of Marcus Samuel. So you got to go back in time and, and you have to use your mind to go back to uh, London in the late 1880s. Uh, Jack the Ripper is stalking the back alleys of a place called Houndsditch, London. Uh, this was the dodgy part of town. And yet this was the place where uh, a ambitious uh, merchant trader by the name of Marcus Samuel had uh, set up shop. And the Samuels were basically, you know, middlemen. They would buy and sell goods, buy low, sell high in Asia uh, and import them into the burgeoning pre or industrializing economy of London. Uh, it was it was a grimy place. It was a poor part of town. Uh, Samuel was actually running a very prosperous business, but he hated one thing, wasting money on overhead. He didn't care how bad his offices looked as long as he was making a profit. And so he started to see how oil and kerosene were just so profitable. You could make so much money on it if you could connect supply where oil was and with demand where oil was needed. The problem is that oil never naturally occurs where it's needed most. And that challenge created this multi-part problem of risk, distance, technology, demand. You, you had to sort of un unravel this puzzle. If you could unravel that puzzle, vast wealth was at, you know, waiting for the taking. Rockefeller had unraveled that puzzle. Samuel began to unravel it. And it was the conflict between these two men that would create the great battles of the late 19th and early 20th century, the battle of competition to break down Rockefeller's standard oil monopoly and create an alternative, a global alternative to it. In the book, you, uh, you said Marcus Samuel Jr., uh, his mastery of the ledger uh, sounds pretty simple, uh, similar to squeezing pennies by Rockefeller. Is that a pretty good comparison? Well, you know, Bill, something that I came out of from this book and this experience was this insight that the accountants always win. So one of the things, <laughs> yeah, right? Even today, the accountants always win. But one of the things that all of these great industrialists, these titans of industry all had in common was their mastery of the dark arts of double entry accounting. So Rockefeller's very first job when he was a young boy was double entry accounting, literally by hand, the rote mechanical actions of add, subtracting cash from one side of the ledger and adding it to the other, doing this by hand. Um, this was Rockefeller's skill. All of these guys, both Rockefeller, Marcus Samuel, and many others, their, their mastery of double entry accounting and bookkeeping and the ledger was their first insight into how business worked. And where both men succeeded was that they could see beyond just the rote calculations. And they realized that the, the ledger, the accounting process, was a vast cipher. It could tell you where a company was winning or losing, what, what it was doing right, what it was doing wrong. I mean, today in business school, I mean, we would call this uh, you know, balance sheet analysis and it has its own specialization, but, but over a hundred years ago, this was the first flicker of insight that both Rockefeller and Samuel had, and it helped to propel their business careers and ultimately propelled them on this collision course with each other where, 
the fate of the global energy industry would uh, come to a crossing point. Peter, you just tied uh, our business to this discussion, which we love. Uh, talk to us about where the name of, of Samuel's company came from. So Marcus Samuel, his family uh, was a shell trading business originally. Uh, their father realized that he could buy shells off of the returning sailors on the wharves of London. Again, it's 1890, very rich, late Victorian period of time. Uh, and so his father would simply buy the shells off of and trinkets off of returning sailors, turn them into tourist tchotchkes uh, and sell them uh, at a markup to, uh, to souvenir hunters in the holiday towns of London. This was the beginning, but also the company expanded into a vast network of buying and selling goods across all of Asia. So Marcus had this network. He had Scottish financiers, the whole Scottish trading houses were the ones who backed him with cash. And his, com his company originally was just buying and selling goods across Asia uh, from London. And then he realized, I can buy oil in Baku on the banks of the Caspian Sea. I can get it through the Suez Canal. And if I can do that, I can reach all of Asia. And if I can do that, I can challenge standard oil at scale. That was brilliant. It was, oh man, it was a huge gamble. If he succeeded, he would become one of the richest men of all time. And if he failed, he would bankrupt the com company and look like a fool. Uh, so that risk and reward proposition was true in his day, and it remains true today. Uh, you, you called the Russian ship Sviet a unique weapon of mass destruction. What was in this new kind of steamship? Uh, the Sviet. Okay, so... Moving product in bulk is a great way to save money. Uh, if you're moving any commodity, it makes sense. If you're moving oil, uh, it becomes extremely dangerous. So uh, one of the very first shipments of oil, of literal kerosene, I mean, they actually refined it. And so it uh, was this vessel called the Sviet. It was the first, one of the very first tankers. Uh, they, the Rothschild brothers actually filled it up with kerosene and they sailed it from the Black Sea all the way into the Thames and into the heart of London. Tens and tens and tens of thousands of tons of kerosene uh, in this vessel. The fumes would build up inside the vessel. And if a single spark hit those fumes, the whole thing would blow. In fact, they often did. Uh, it was often seen that being a sailor, a merchant sailor on one of these early tankers uh, was a suicide mission. I mean, you were basically guaranteeing that you were going to die uh, if you signed on to one of these voyages. Uh, it was so dangerous and ultimately, that was Marcus's genius. That was his insight because he realized he could develop a new kind of technology uh, that could solve these dangers and, and harms. Uh, and in doing so, he could build the world's very first, we would call it, modern oil tanker. He would make it safe. He would get Lloyds of London to certify it. And with that, he could do the impossible for the first time, sail his oil through the Suez Canal, linking Asia with the West through commerce. That was Marcus's genius, and uh, it's what propelled his company, the, uh, the Murex, named after the shells that his father used to buy and sell on the wharves of London. Uh, and this, his company, as we now know, Bill, and you know, would become Shell Oil, one of the largest uh, hydrocarbon companies in the world today. Can, can you give us a feel for the size and speed of the ship? and how revolutionary it was, 
And then, and then I think you've hinted at it, but uh, what, what did this all mean for Marcus Samuel, ultimately? Well, here's the, let me start with that last part first, because you've got to understand, you know, what was driving this guy? Uh, I spent years really researching his biography, re learning about him, going back in time, and trying to really understand this man. And there was a difference, though, between him and ultimately John D. Rockefeller, who he challenged and ultimately bested. Uh, the difference was that Rockefeller ultimately was trying to make money for money's sake, whereas Marcus Samuel wanted to, to make money to become legitimate in English society because Marcus Samuel had a problem. He was Jewish. Being Jewish in the late 1880s and 1890s in England, well, you had to deal with some things called anti-Semitism. It wasn't overt at times, it was insidious. And uh, no one would say it to your face, but they would quietly say, well, you know, he's a nice man, but he is a Jew. And this really bothered Marcus. It should have, it was gross and disgusting. So Marcus realized the only way I'm ever gonna be taken seriously in this society is to become richer than ever everyone. I, and so that really launched him. If I can make money, if I can become wealthy, I can uh, acquire the, uh, the noble titles of wealth that are uh, incumbent upon my status. And, uh, and with that wealth, I can attain what I really want, and that is acceptance uh, and um, adulation in this society. And so that really is a differentiating factor between Rockefeller and Marcus. It's, it's something that I found very compelling about Marcus. Uh, and it really is a red thread that, that is woven into the fabric of this true life story in Breaking Rockefeller. Well, and the positive is uh, as someone that has siblings myself, uh, Peter, um, if your name's Marcus Samuel and your brother's name is Samuel Samuel, uh, life gets a lot easier if you're Marcus. Um, uh, so uh, let's see. So, yeah, so let me, let me, let's kind of pivot. So, um, you, you talked about Pennsylvania and, you know, Baku's obviously in, in Russia. So wh wh why was Russian oil so much more difficult than the petroleum fields in the United States? Well, one of the problems is that Mark, uh, Standard Oil had established what is, in effect, a um, unchallengeable monopoly over the American oil industry. Uh, so by the 1880s and 1890s, Standard Oil wasn't just the largest company in the energy industry. Standard Oil wasn't even just one of the largest companies uh, among others in America. Standard Oil was by and large the American economy. It was so big. It is really hard to understand or compare it to today's economy, but the scale of Standard was so big and so dominating, you just couldn't compete with the American producer here. So if you're gonna sell oil to Asia, you have to go find it somewhere else in the world. And the other place in the world that Marcus looked was in Baku, this legendary oil city of Baku on the Black Sea coast. Uh, people, human beings had known about oil in this part of the world for millennia. Uh, they used to worship these eternal flames that would uh, never go out uh, as you know a sign of uh, supernatural phenomenon. Well, we know today that it was a naturally occurring oil seepage or, or gas seepage that was a flame that never burned burned out. Okay, so so in Baku, you saw these 
vast quantities of oil. But there was a problem. Baku was too far away from, uh, from the Black Sea coast. So uh, once again, you had to solve this multi-part problem of distance technology, risk, and greed. Uh, and if you can solve that problem, you can get a product from where it is to where it's needed. And, and that's ultimately what Marcus did. He made a deal with the Rothschilds. He uh, combined that with his new invention of the modern oil tanker. Uh, and with that, he could do something that no one else in the world could do, and that is move oil in bulk through the Suez Canal, because it was only with a safe tanker, a tanker that wouldn't explode, uh, that you could get the, uh, the Suez Authority to authorize transit through the Suez Canal. That cut distance off of his travel time, that cut cost off of his transportation uh, part of the ledger, and uh, Marcus could finally compete directly with Standard Oil in Asia. Risk technology, distance, greed, these are all the components that were true in Marcus's time. They remain true today. You have to solve them if you are going to win. And I find the, the Rothschilds particularly interesting because obviously this was the French uh, side of the family. Um, but obviously they didn't come up with the idea to you know move the oil. Uh, it was actually uh, uh, Ser Sergei uh, Palashkovsky and, and Andre Bunge who came up with that. But can you teach our listeners you know why they didn't end up being the owners in the end? Well, this is, uh, you know, I said the accountants always win, but you got to be careful because ultimately the bankers really win. <laughs> <laughs> like if you're going to take money out on a loan, you got to make sure you're going to be able to pay it back. So yeah, I mean, here, I mean, you, for everyone listening, you got to imagine you have a coastline. It's, it's like California. It's temperate. It's moderate. This is the Black Sea coast uh, in what we would now call today modern day Georgia. Uh, and um, uh, and then you have this mountain range, and then you have the Caspian Sea, where giant gushers of oil, huge blowouts are happening. Uh, there was so much oil in uh, Baku that you would basically just drill a hole into the ground and create a giant pool out of sand, you would let the oil flow into the pool. And if you could sell the oil uh, in Baku, then okay, people would come in buckets, pick it up and leave. If you couldn't sell the oil, you just torched it and drilled another hole and tried to sell that oil. This was how much oil they were dealing with. So in order to cross the geographic barrier, uh, these two Russians decided we're gonna build a, uh, a train link uh, between the coast and where the oil is, and we're gonna get money on the credit from the Rothschilds. Uh, and it was an ambitious idea. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the venture ultimately failed because it was too expensive. Uh, it wasn't efficiently run. The Roth, it went into bankruptcy. The Rothschilds took ownership of it and said, mm, we can improve on this actually. So it was kind of like your first private equity acquisition here where they're like, mm, interesting idea, lots of inefficiencies. We can come in, pick, uh, you know, stre uh, streamline some of these inefficiencies and make this an efficient operation. And that's exactly what the Rothschilds did. And so that's how you had one of the famous French banking houses suddenly become one of the largest oil companies in the world. Uh, again, risk technology, geography, greed, you have to solve these problems, these puzzles in order to succeed. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but obviously the Rothschilds ended up just accepting peace with Rockefeller because they're bankers. They're not made to take the volatility uh, you know, on, the, on, on commodities. They ultimately just wanted a, you know, a, a meaningful return on their capital and that's it. So they make peace. Um, 
Was that just them being bankers at the end of the day and not wanting to lose money? Well, they made peace out of necessity because they, the Rothschilds, the powerful banking house of, of the one of the powerful banking houses of the world, ran into the buzzsaw that was Rockefeller's devious marketing strategy called Cut to Kill. So the Rothschilds didn't make peace with Standard Oil. The Rothschilds were forced forced to accept a small part in his empire. So cut to kill was this devious strategy whereby Rockefeller, because he had so many markets around the world locked down, uh, Rockefeller would essentially slash the price of his product, of his kerosene, in a new market he was hoping to break into, uh, and then simultaneously raise the price of kerosene, exploiting his customers in a market that he had established a monopoly in. And these customers here in the monopoly market would subsidize his expansion by essentially price dumping today, we would call it. It's illegal in America right now, but Rockefeller would you know, essentially dump his product in a new market and subsidize that expansion on the backs of his own customers in, in a monopoly market that he controlled. The Rothschilds, once they started to compete against Rockefeller, came into contact with Cut to Kill. Rockefeller said, all right, crack the knuckles, let's go. He would undercut their price, they couldn't compete, and they came to him and said, all right, can we come up with some sort of market sharing agreement, also illegal in America? Do you notice the trend? Everything that Rockefeller was doing is now illegal in America today. There's a reason for that, and I hope we can talk about it because it shows that uh, Rockefeller wasn't this model of entrepreneurialism. He wasn't this model of capitalism. He was an example of what happens when uh, free market principles metastasize and become cancerous and ultimately dangerous to the body politic. And I, I um, by everything we're talking about here is music to our ears. Um, I mean, obviously, we're big oil investors, and we've even doing, been doing research on the uh, oil tanker business with the likes of John Fredrickson out there. But I, um, just because I don't want to be the millennial that acts like the chronological uh, snob, what did the Suez Canal do to the economics of world energy? I mean, we take it for granted today, but what was that like to create that and 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 get something like that to the market to be able to tra tra traverse the world quicker? Well, yeah, like well, as we saw with, uh, I think it was the um, the Evergreen cargo ship that uh, essentially you know blocked itself in the Suez. And we saw what happened to global supply chains when uh, even in our own time you couldn't use the Suez. Yet, what 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 was the solution? You had to go the long way. You had to go all the way around Africa, adding time, adding money, adding overhead and, and uh, transportation costs uh, to. Uh, to to the cost of getting a product from point A to point B where a consumer wanted it. Uh, same thing in the era of uh, John D. Rockefeller, in the era of Marcus Samuel. Marcus's big insight, his, his big breakthrough was, was that for a, a significant period of time, he was the only one in the world, the company that would, we would now call Shell Oil, was the only company in the world uh, that could move oil from Baku through the Suez into Asian markets. And uh, tapping into that huge demand for kerosene in China, in Japan, in Sumatra, and in Indonesia, um, Marcus was the only one who could do that. So he had solved this problem. Uh, it is uh, one of the old problems of any free market enterprise. Marcus had done it. Rockefeller's company couldn't compete. They didn't have these new modern tankers that were safe 
And as a result, uh, they, they had to go the long way around if they were going to move oil from the Black Sea to Asia, uh, or they could move oil from uh, the United States to Asia. Uh, but, you know, then they had to compete with Marcus, who could challenge them. And better yet, he could use cut to kill against Rockefeller because he could move so much volume out of the Black Sea. So we, we really don't, you know, I call it a, a tale of David and Goliath, uh, this story of, of the upstarts and underdogs who challenged Rockefeller. But ultimately, David had to become a titan himself. He had to become a Goliath himself in order to go toe to toe with Standard. And, and I love that because it's not until you have competition that consumers can ultimately win. Oil is an infinite product in our mind. It all comes down to it, what price does it cost to extract? Um, and obviously, Baku, you know, using those places or Pennsylvania, the cost to extract, as you pointed out, was like shoving a, a screwdriver in the ground pretty much. Um, now, so, so can you give us some frame, frame of reference, you know, if you think about, you know, the Dakotas today or Midland, Texas, what would be kind of your American picture of a town like Baku uh, for our listeners to, you know, understand practically? Oh, boom towns never change. They're always the same. Uh, that <laughs> it doesn't matter what century you are in or where you are. Yeah, of course. Um, so cost of extraction or cost of production for a barrel is, is obviously in today's day and age, the Saudis great advantage because it costs them so little. It costs Saudi Aramco so little to get a single barrel of crude out of the, out of the ground versus uh, many other countries around the world, including the United States. Uh, we see this in the battle that the Saudis had with the American uh, frackers, the oil frackers uh, in the teens, the 20 teens. Uh, we're seeing it play out today. Uh, there's an added element of government regulation, but I would confirm one of the aspects of your analysis. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, we are going to run out of customers for crude oil before we ever run out of crude. Uh, the, <laughs> the myth of peak oil is just is just that. I mean, I remember 2007, 2008, when we were being told that the world is running out. Remember Syriana, which is a fun movie. I love it. But, you know, Matt Damon is, is lecturing uh, the public on the big screen. It's running out. And the only people who have any crude oil left are here in the Middle East. What a bunch of bunk. I mean, we have so much energy in the world. And I think this is the big insight we should take. I know that gasoline right now is uh, north of $4, close to $5 in most parts of the United States. Uh, but that's not because we're lacking the raw uh, resource. It's because of regulatory obstructions uh, and not NIMBY, not in my backyard problems with refining capacity. I mean, these are man-made problems, not na nature-made problems. And if they're man-made problems, there are man-made solutions to those problems. So uh, ultimately, yeah, oil is a, a energy resource that uh, we have in abundance and we always will. Uh, natural gas is another one. I, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate of this idea. You have to change the, your attitude towards energy. 20 years ago, 15 year, years ago, we had this idea of energy scarcity. And we had to make all of these geopolitical and economic calculations based on the assumption that energy was a scarce resource. 
That is not true. It is the opposite. Energy is, we have energy abundance. The problem we're facing right now is in the regulatory um, hurdles that are put in place that prevent companies from unleashing that abundance uh, and ultimately helping consumers. And I think that is the organizing challenge of our time in the energy world. So uh, let's sw shift gears just a little bit back to Marcus Samuel. How, how did uh, James Fortescue Flannery's friendship with Marcus Samuel change the oil business? So there's one thing to be a brilliant entrepreneur, and it's, you can be a brilliant entrepreneur and have a brilliant idea, but the best entrepreneurs surround themselves with brilliant people. Uh, and so uh, Flannery uh, was one of those brilliant people. He was a ship designer, a maritime architect. Uh, Marcus Samuel wasn't a specialist in designing ships. So when I say Marcus invented the world's first uh, super modern oil tanker, we'll call it, the, the grandfather of today's super, super tanker, uh, yeah, okay, he gets credit for it, but really it was Flannery who designed it. Uh, but more so, Flannery designed it to the regulations. He knew Lloyds of London. He knew how they like to certify, quote unquote, safe. Uh, and so he, if he was going to build a safe tanker that would be certified to squeeze through the Suez Canal, uh, Marcus needed someone who could do that for him. And that was uh, the man we now know as Sir Flannery, uh, who would get a knighthood for his trouble. Uh, but the big takeaway here is uh, know your regulations, know how your regulator likes to think, uh, design your system, in this case, an oil tanker, uh, to please the regulators, uh, and then move very quickly uh, to beat your competition because you have first mover advantage. Uh, in your economic analysis, look for companies with that kind of spirit and moxie, uh, and you'll have a hard time going wrong. So far, you've taught us about Rockefeller of Standard Oil and Marcus Samuel of Shell. Who is Aelko Jan Zilker, and how did Providence cause him to start what became Royal Dutch? Well, Bill, I don't know about you, but in life, I think we all find uh, a friend who's an enemy who becomes a frenemy, you know, simultaneously a competitor, but also a friend. Uh, and that was, uh, that was, that was the father of a company called Royal Dutch Shell. So Hans Zilker was another one of these guys with a vision and a dream. Uh, and uh, he saw the prospect of oil production in Sumatra. So you have, again, we're going back in time. He's Dutch. There's this Dutch colonial uh, colony of Sumatra. And uh, here, oil occurs in abundance. So Zilker came up with, wrote a business plan. He got some backing. He, got, he floated an IPO in the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. It was a huge success. Uh, he had a lot of problems in setting up his company in the jungle. I mean, he had he had so many trouble uh, problems that his 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 laborers would literally just disappear overnight. Maybe a tiger ate them. Maybe pirates captured them. I don't know. We're trying to pump oil in Sumatra and it's 1890. These are the kind of problems you have to face in, in that time and place. And, and so he, the stress basically killed him. Uh, he died young and his, uh, his replacement was a up and coming business manager who is one of those creatures that you see all the time. They, they know how to manage a company. It doesn't really matter what company it is. Uh, they just want to manage a company. And his name was Detterding. Uh, and Detterding was, um, was 
a savage winner. He did not want to lose. He would destroy you. If you came up against him, bring the brass knuckles because he's up, but you're too late because he's already got the chainsaw out. This was Detterding. He was a very impressive competitor. And uh, Detterding and Samuel initially competed with each other uh, for the Asian market. Samuel running oil from the Black Sea through the Suez into Asia. Detterding running oil uh, from Sumatra into Asian markets. And um, they, they essentially had to set their egos aside, set their differences aside and say, look, if if we keep fighting each other, Rockefeller is ultimately going to grind us down through a war of attrition. Let's join forces. Let's merge our company. And Bill, that was the moment where you went from David's plural, David's and Goliath against Goliath to a Goliath versus Goliath, a true title fight uh, that was Royal Dutch Shell versus Standard Oil. And it was competition which guaranteed that consumers won. So, so talk a little bit about how difficult it was to find and drill the oil in Sumatra. Well, one of the problems that a lot of these early pro oil prospectors faced was, was that, you know, the science of geology was, was not yet a science. It, it was developing as a science, but there wasn't really a lot of geological science behind the, the process. Uh, usually, if you wanted to find oil, you would find a, a natural seepage in the world where, you know, crude oil was just literally leaking out into a creek somewhere, and you would yeah, I like the phrase, punch a screwdriver into the ground. Uh, usually these were big screwdrivers. Uh, and, you know, see if you found oil. And if you did, then you would set up another well close by to where that well was producing oil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's really not how the best way. So uh, Royal Dutch Shell uh, was innovative in that their first couple wells came in big, but then they promptly collapsed and production fell. And they had a big problem because, you know, they're running an oil company without any crude oil. It's, it stopped flowing. So they hired a bunch of pioneering geologists, creating the very first merger between business and the new science of geology to find new oil. In the end, this process was successful. I have a whole section of, of how that worked out in Breaking Rockefeller. It's one of my favorite chapters of the book. Uh, but ultimately, they, the science won out. The geologists confirmed their future status as the kings of the world of hydrocarbon prospecting uh, and um, kings and queens, I should say. Uh, and uh, Royal Dutch Shell gets credit for being one of the first companies in the world to, to, to say, you know what, we're going to take these scientists seriously. And they reaped the benefit as a result. Carl Benz comes along, uh, teach us uh, about, you know, obviously his, his background and, and obviously what he brought to the forefront of this oil discussion. Well, you know, we talked about that wretched stuff, gasoline, but, but that's the transition point where, you know, Rockefeller, all of Pennsylvania, all of these early oil prospectors, they, they were creating kerosene. So when they were refining crude oil, they were refining it into one of those fractions I talked about uh, that was kerosene. Good for burning a, a lamp wick, for example. Uh, but not very good for running an internal combustion engine. So Benz, uh, Daimler, uh, several other early automotive engineers were the first to, to, to not invent the internal combustion engine. That, that concept had already been done in the, by the mid-1870s. Internal combustion engines were, were 
invented. They were they were huge things, though. I mean, these were these were engines that were designed to run factories, not a, a small little tricycle, which is essentially what the early Benz vehicle was. And so, but Benz's innovation was was to take an, an existing concept and miniaturize it, and then produce it at scale. Uh, and that's what helped create uh, Mercedes-Benz that we know and love today. Uh, so, to, you know, again, we see this idea of innovation, building on something else, uh, and it was the, um, the miniaturization of the uh, early internal combustion engine that allowed it to ultimately beat out its rival, again, competition, its rival on the roads of the time, the uh, uh, automotive steam engine, Yes, steam engines were a thing uh, back in the day. They ch briefly challenged gasoline in, and internal combustion. Gasoline won out. Uh, and we have uh, uh, 120 years of automotive history until EVs and Tesla came along. So that's a cool story. It's a great story. And um, I mean, I'm doing this podcast, Peter, with my dad, who's always taught me, if you can find a business where someone else will market your company for you, that's one hell of a business. Right? Thank you, Elon and, Musk, and, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, well, yeah. Well, but I say it because, you know, these oil companies and these, you know, that ended up producing refined product of gasoline, they didn't have to create the car. They didn't have to sell the car. They just had to be the provider. And it gets back at this idea of oil is really like a proxy of economic growth. So could you kind of explain how revolutionary was the car to this market? In other words, give some context but between going from kerosene to gasoline as the primary use. Yeah, how brilliant, how brilliant was the Antitrust Act in getting in the way of Rockefeller before we started making millions and selling millions of cars in the United States? Right. So, Bill, that's I got to say, uh, you guys are I think you're on to something here. I, I really like that insight. I, I I'll be honest, I hadn't really thought of it in those terms before. But look for a company that is selling a product that someone else is marketing it for them. It's, it's a good insight um, that played out here in the case of gasoline. So uh, the Henry Ford, the automobile industry, uh, we got to go back in time to the I would say mid to late 1890s uh, to the turn of the century when the automobile was finally coming into its own. This was the point of transition where uh, the automobile was going from this weird hobbyist you know, weekend gentleman uh, uh, sort of pastime really uh, into the modern form of transportation that we know today. Fun fact, Bill, and for other listeners who love Breaking Rockefeller, who are interested, uh, I just launched a Substack now. I've got my first uh, Substack. I listened to my wife. She kept saying, you should, you should launch a Substack. Uh, so I did. And uh, one of the very first things I did was publish at my Substack, which is Peter Duran. .substack.com, uh, the lost chapter to Breaking Rockefeller. This was the one chapter that I wanted to get in the, into the book, and my publisher rightfully said, hey, we should pull this out and publish it as a standalone piece. I've done that. And this is important because I catalog and detail that moment of transition that you're asking about, that moment of transition when the automobile went from uh, just this gentleman's pastime curiosity into the real uh, beast that we know today. Now, you talked about regulation and the Sherman Antitrust Act. All of this is important because had Rockefeller m managed to control the global oil industry, certainly the oil industry in the United States, uh, it would have inhibited competition. Uh, quite the opposite happened. 
the moment the automobile is hitting its stride, the moment you're seeing companies flourish by competing with each other over time, uh, this is the moment it's occurring in tandem with the rise of the automobile. So I, I really think back and I wonder what would the world look like today? How would it be different if monopolies instead of competition ultimately prevailed in the American energy industry? Uh, I'm glad we got competition instead of monopolies or monopolistic competition. Uh, you wrote in chapter 13, standard trust in, in secrecy the way a besieged city trusts its walls. What do you mean by this? Thank you for finding one of my favorite quotes, Bill. I love that quote. Yes, I, I, I wrote it. Um, Standard was very secretive. They did not like to share information with the outside world. They saw their company as their own private walled garden, and nobody else had any business poking their nose into what they were doing. Uh, be keeping secrets was very, very important. Uh, it was a form of protection against competition, protecting the monopoly. Uh, also, hiding the fact that they had a monopoly in the first place was part of that secret culture of secrecy. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, secrecy was a layer of protection. And it, it wasn't until Rockefeller started to get older uh, and many of his directors started to get crotchety, uh, you know, grumpy, uh, maybe feel they had some uh, unfinished business or vendettas they wanted to pursue against Rockefeller in the end, uh, that that wall of secrecy broke down and ultimately standards illegal business practices and the existence of a monopoly, the standard oil monopoly itself, were revealed to the public. And once that news broke, it really upset people and brought in the regulators, brought in the politicians, brought in Teddy Roosevelt uh, and others. And, and that was ultimately the, the, the catalyst for the downfall of Standard Oil and the birth of the many children who would be born, the children companies that would be born from Standard. That, that's a great lead into Ida Tarbell uh, as a key person in the entire antitrust story. What was her motivation? Well, Ida... Her dad, uh, her dad was destroyed by John D. Rockefeller. Uh, this was a powerful motivating factor for her. So Ida Tarbell was a literal child of the Pennsylvania boom we were talking about. Ida was, um, her dad uh, was created barrels and tanks that you could hold petroleum in. And her dad was ultimately a victim of Rockefeller's conquest of the oil regions. John D. Rockefeller never knew Ida Tarbell's dad, never knew his name, frankly, he probably didn't, wouldn't even care. But Ida Tarbell saw Rockefeller destroy her dad uh, emotionally, uh, financially, and she would go on to become a very successful writer in her own right, uh, but she never forgot about this. So after writing a very successful biography on uh, Abraham Lincoln and a very successful biography on Napoleon, uh, she's at the peak of her powers. She's the most famous writer at this uh, very popular magazine called McClure's at the time, uh, and she resolves to finally tell the story of John D. Rockefeller and the Standard Oil Company and its monopoly and its devious business tactics. And she makes a friend in uh, the man named Hellhound Rogers, H.H. Rogers, uh, who was one of Rockefeller's directors. And Mark Twain was the guy who introduced them to each other. Uh, and it was through this uh, friendship that she had her inside source. And from this, she would tell over a multi, I think it was something like 17 parts, 19 part series, every month, a new 
bombshell came out on the pages of McClure's and she systematically pulled back the curtain. She ripped down that wall of secrecy that Rockefeller had built around his company. And when the American public got its true first look at what Standard was doing, it really upset them. They were disgusted by shady business practices and the exploitation of consumers uh, that monopolies tend to do. Uh, and so that was the catalyst for uh, uh, congressional action, uh, uh, legal uh, action by attorneys, uh, attorney generals around the country, and ultimately uh, the breaking up of Standard Oil into many companies by the Supreme Court in 1911. Uh, uh, how, how did Henry Flagler, uh, Rockefeller's best friend, what part did he play in completely uh, breaking that wall of secrecy down? Well, Flagler was uh, one of, frankly, Flagler was one of Rockefeller's earliest partners. I mean, he joined on way back in Cleveland. He was uh, uh, one of those failed whiskey distillers I mentioned earlier. Uh, uh, he, you know, rolled the snake eyes in the whiskey business and Rockefeller came along and he joined on with them. Flagler made a lot of money with Rockefeller, uh, being an early director of Standard. He, he and others, uh, basically they constituted the directors of Rockefeller's empire. Uh, Rockefeller uh, essentially delegated day-to-day -day management operations of this sprawling company to them. Uh, by the 1890s, though, Flagler had made so much money through his standard oil holdings uh, that he started looking towards retirement and looking at building up the swampland around southern Florida. Uh, and he was started investing in railroads and building up the infrastructure that could get tourists down to southern Florida. He founded a town that he called Flaglerville uh, that we today call Miami. Uh, and uh, he built the, oversea, uh, the Overseas Railroad to Key West. So flag, it shows how these gentlemen had vast sums of money, uh, big ambition, huge ideas. Uh, and uh, once you have that kind of money, you, you can you know, make it happen. Uh, ultimately, Flagler was, um, was a complex character. He had a very bad habit of picking and marrying the wrong women uh, who uh, would distract him. Uh, lots of messy divorces with Flagler. Uh, and uh, in the end, we, we definitely can thank him for helping to create Daytona, uh, helping to create the early uh, NASCAR racing circuit uh, that we know and love today. Uh, so Flagler continues to have a long-lasting legacy uh, over Florida, over the oil industry, uh, and ultimately over the thoughts of John D. Rockefeller. I feel like Twain uh, never ceases to pop up somewhere, to your point earlier. Uh, we had just uh, recorded a podcast with Matt Bernstein on his book, George Hurst, and Hearst and him were former Missourians that woke up in Virginia City, Nevada together. So I, I wonder if Mark Twain was able to teleport long before the rest of us were able to. Um, let's see. So you, you wrote for years, domestic opposition to, to monopolies like Standard Oil had been collecting in the American body politic like toxins in the liver. Um, introduce us to John Sherman and, and, and the eventual uh, Sherman Antitrust Act. Wow, you guys are finding all my favorite sentences. Yes, uh, I love that one, that one too. All right, so I talked about monopolies. Monopolies ultimately are a bad thing because they create inefficiencies and they exploit their, their customers. Um, so this upsets people. And John Sherman uh, 
was a congressman from Ohio, and he started realizing, wait a minute, voters are are grumpy about this monopoly business, this trust business. Uh, so Sherman decided this would be his mission in life, and he railed against the consolidation of capital in the American uh, economy. He looked around and he saw all of these companies. It just wasn't standard oil. It was every industry, the meatpacking industry, the railroads, you name it. Everyone was on this quest to create their own monopoly, a vertically integrated monopoly. The consolidation of capital was the highest attainment of wealth because if you could destroy your competition you could create a monopoly boom that's it that's winning that's the american dream and sherman said no and so sherman authored uh, this groundbreaking legislation that would essentially prohibit any single enterprise from establishing a monopoly in the united states fun fact the Sherman Antitrust Act still lives on today. It's been modified and there's additional legislation that has been passed over the last know, 140 years at this point, maybe. Uh, but you know, ultimately, if you are in the United States and you want to create a monopoly, the long arm of John Sherman is reaching out from the grave to stop you. At least it should. And this is our problem today, because have you ever taken a domestic airline flight in the United States in the last 20 years? Have you tried to buy baby formula in the last six months? Have you tried to buy meat in the last six months? These are all industries that, while not monopolies, certainly qualify as um, monopolistic competition. There's no longer enough competition left in these industries, and we are suffering the consequences as a result. So I think the big lesson, and I really would love to chat about it more, is, is that the, the challenges that America faced over 130 years ago are still relevant today. We have the legislative and uh, philosophical roadmap to, to, resol to resolve these challenges, we're just not doing it. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a powerful lesson that I, I tease out in Breaking Rockefeller. And I think for anyone who wants to buy an airline ticket or buy meat at the grocery store or buy some baby formula, you are encountering the deficiencies in our system that John Sherman tried to remedy over 130, 130 years ago. Now, but he, he didn't get to pass. He didn't pass that overnight. How, how long of a process was that for him to take that through and and get it signed and, and into law? It took years. So this is the eighteen late eighteen eighties. Uh, ultimately, he had to give this huge speech uh, on the floor of Congress. Uh, I, I went back, literally going back to the old congressional record. I found his original speech, and it's. It's one of these like Mr. Smith goes to Washington moments where, you know, you just live uh, American patriotism reading this speech. Uh, it, it's, it's the idea that the founders created, that you would have this idea, you would get elected to Congress, you would you know, work the sausage making process that is legislation, uh, making legislation in Congress. Uh, you would get this passed. The Sherman Antitrust Act is still relevant today and still relevant for the oil industry. So when Exxon and Mobil, for example, uh, two companies that were produced from the Supreme Court's breakup of Standard Oil uh, in 1911, uh, Exxon and Mobil uh, in the early 1990s wanted to re-merge to create the company we now know as Exxon Mobil, one of the largest oil companies on the planet, frankly. Uh, in order to get through this merger, they had to go through 
FTC approval. And the FTC was drawing on the Sherman Antitrust Act to make sure that this merger wouldn't violate that principle. And before the merger was allowed to go through, they actually had to spin off some companies and create competition in certain markets that uh, would have been unduly burdened by over, you know, basically too much control by one company. Uh, so uh, again, uh, John Sherman's m vision for a, an economy where capital was not overly consolidated and competition was allowed to thrive, uh, that was a vision that America committed to. Uh, I fear, though, in our own day and age, we are veering away from that and regulators are too lazy, uh, frankly, to uh, to impose the the true letter and spirit of the law on companies, and ultimately the victims are customers. And if again, if you've ever flown on an American domestic flight, just remember it doesn't have to be this way. We have laws to prevent this. Talk just a little bit about uh, he he they they were looking for things that might ruin the American experiment. I think I think you you quote him as saying disturb the social order. Uh, talk about that a little bit. It, that, that, that was more the heart philosophy of the act, wasn't it? 100%. And Bill, that's, that's, the, um, that's the heart of his message. The consolidation of capital has become so dangerous in our own day and age he's talking about the 1880s, uh, that it threatens to disturb the social order. Uh, I think when we look around the United States today in 2022, uh, we see many of those similar dangers arising. I mean, just look at the tech sector. Look at the con consolidation of capital in, in big tech right now. Uh, you know, if you have an opinion that might not be uh, popular or an approved opinion uh, and you want to use social media, uh, if you get banned from one platform, you're you're really out of luck. There aren't that many other platforms to go to. This is because of the consolidation of capital, because we have just a few big tech companies operating. This is a similar challenge that, that Sherman understood. And just as in his day, uh, the consolidation of capital in our own day and age threatens once again, I believe, to disturb and upend the social order. And that's what we're seeing. Again, though, we have a roadmap for fixing this. John Sherman provided that roadmap. Uh, the, the challenge here is that, you know, our own bureaucracies at the federal level and perhaps at the state are not doing their best job uh, to enforce the letter and the spirit of anti-monopoly uh, laws and, and to promote true competition, not monopolistic or um, uh, competition or oligopolies. So, so it's really a judgment call. It, it, you read so much, and, and the, the legal people that are in the antitrust world, they're all saying things like, well, this precedent and this precedent and this precedent is what we have to go by, when, when the truth of it is, whenever you, you, you use the law, you're making a judgment call, are you not? And a political call. So this is, uh, you know, I... We started talking about energy, but I think this is ultimately the bigger issue that we face right now in the United States. And I'm going to refer to only publicly available information uh, in the case of the American Airlines U.S. Airlines merger. So that went through federal regulatory review. And the question was, if we take the two largest airlines in America and we allow them to merge, won't that be bad for competition? And American Airlines wrote a letter to the federal government and said, 
Yes, yes it will. And you are correct, we'll probably be anti-competitive. But if you don't allow us to merge, American Airlines goes out of business and 12,000 people lose their jobs. And we are asking you, allow, look the other way on the Sherman Antitrust Act so that we don't have to fire 12,000 people. And that was it. So, I mean, it was a political decision by the Obama administration to essentially not enforce the Sherman Antitrust Act. And that's the real issue that we get today. So now we, everyone's like has a terrible experience flying. And that's just one example. It's because we have gotten away from the true vision of America's founding spirit, our founding legislative process. Uh, and there is a way to change this. We just need politicians to have the courage uh, to say no. And too often that doesn't happen. So uh, does does Congressman Cicilline and Senator Hawley, do they have the perseverance that Sherman did to, to, to do the right thing? I should hope that we return to that spirit. I don't know. I, I don't know Hawley personally. Uh, I, do, I do see that increasingly uh, politicians are realizing that people are upset about meat prices and meat shortages, baby food prices and baby food uh, uh, formula uh, shortages. Uh, they're upset about the consolidation of capital. Uh, and, you know, Bill, as you pointed out, the uh, uh, the turmoil that it's creating, creating in the body politic. Uh, excuse me. This is the challenge we face. Uh, it, there is a legislative solution, but ultimately, we have to enforce the laws we have on the books. We have to stop looking the other way on the Sherman Antitrust Act, looking the other way on uh, anti-monopolistic regulations. We have to allow competition to thrive in America once again, even if it's hard, even if it means companies go bankrupt. Great, that creates space in the marketplace for a new company to do something better and different and hire up the best people from the old company and not hire the you know dead weight. This is how efficiencies are created. This is how America was built and we're getting away from that. And the question for our country now is what do we do? So how do you, how do you as a historian look at uh, Apple or Amazon or Google or Facebook through the standard oil lens? Did, aren't they uh, aren't they a concentration of capital in the way that he feared? Yes, 100%. I use all their products. I, I'm a customer of every one of those companies. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, you don't have a choice. Uh, and if you want, I mean, think about it. If you want an alternative to Amazon, where do you go? I mean, there, frankly, there, there isn't one in many respects. So so this is this is the issue. Um, I am I'm very encouraged. I'm very positive and I like to encourage our elected leaders uh, to explore breaking up companies, uh, breaking them into smaller pieces, forcing them to compete against each other. Uh, I think ultimately that will be a huge project. It can't be done overnight. It will go to the court system. The, this is the big lesson from Standard Oil and this fight. Uh, it's that these are long wars. These are long legal wars of attrition. Uh, they don't happen overnight. They take decades, but ultimately, the winning side is the side that supports competition, it supports the law, it supports customers. Once you can do that, you can create the, the components of a, of a society that will thrive and be prosperous. Uh, right now, if we fail to do that, we will reap the sour fruit. And I want that to be avoided. Yeah, so to your point, um, 
as we, it's funny, the, the, the primary pushback we've heard on, you know, discussion like this is, well, what do you do with a technology company with intellectual property? For example, as we all know today, Standard Oil is broken up by geography. And people say, well, you can't do that. And it's like, well, why can't Google of California compete with Google of Texas? That actually creates competition. They'd have all the same IP. But so, so um, real quick story, because I, I, I don't know if everyone knows the story about Rockefeller. Um, can you teach our listeners the story of, of where Rockefeller was and what he did at the news of his breakup? Oh, this is the best one, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so go back to the very beginning. Go back to Rockefeller as a young 16, 17-year-old. He's at the ledger. He's doing double-entry bookkeeping by heart, and he understands the value, ultimately, of balance sheet analysis. Uh, Rockefeller, as he built Standard Oil up into this global empire, was hiding tremendous value on his balance sheet. The parts of his empire were worth far more than anyone truly understood. Uh, and as one company, okay, they, they would have one price in the, in the marketplace, but broken up into multiple different pieces, the sum value of the, ver the new companies would be worth more, would be more valuable economically uh, as individual separate companies than they would be as one big monopoly. So, Rockefeller is playing golf uh, with a Catholic priest uh, on the day that the Supreme Court decision is handed down. This was decades in the making. This was a huge national battle. And finally, the Supreme Court issues its ruling. And it said that Standard Oil should be broken up, but not dissolved. And that was the big key. That was what everyone was wanting to see. So a messenger comes to Rockefeller on the golf course, hands him a slip of paper. He reads it quickly. He determines very, very quickly that uh, the court says, break up standard oil, don't dissolve it, and um, force its entire liquidation. Uh, he folds the paper, puts it in his pocket, looks over at it, the priest and says, if you have any money left, Father, buy standard oil. Uh, essentially buy shares of Standard Oil because he knew that his empire was about to become vastly more, um, uh, the value of each share of his empire was going to be worth vastly more when it was broken up and resold as multiple companies. So that's an interesting story. And that's the great irony of history. The fight to break Rockefeller's monopoly would, n would make him not just the richest human being in America, not the richest human being in the world, but he would become the richest human being who has ever lived. In modern day numbers, he would be worth somewhere, we I did the number. I did the calculation just a couple months ago. He'd be worth somewhere around four hundred and seventy-six billion dollars in today's money. Think about that. So to connect up, you've probably you know, and I love that story by the way about the priest. Um, it's just a, a fantastic way to think about it. You know, as as we're investors ourselves, obviously. Peter, we could go on talking for like two or three days on this because we just think it's a... Hey, you guys have been so generous having it's, me here. Yeah. It's a very fun subject. And I, your book's a wonderful picture of, like you said, you know, what, what we're looking at today and the questions we need to ask and really the judgment calls that we, we might have to make. So is there anything that we haven't covered in our discussion that, that has been 
you know, unsaid or you know, ha- hasn't been spoken of yet? Well, I think we, we really ran the traps here. I mean, we started off looking at the development of the early energy industry. We saw how Rockefeller identified the refining gate as, as this one choke point that he could control. We saw how he levered and pyramided that into a globe-spanning monopoly, starting with just the refining industry and then controlling the whole oil industry around the world. How upstarts and underdogs had to join forces to defeat him, Uh, how that that eternal problem set of distance, geography, risk, technology, and greed uh, is the same then as it is, is the same today as it was then. Uh, I think we've really had a great deep long form conversation. Uh, Bill, I love how you guys keep coming back to this idea of learning from the past, of of being curious, of not using uh, single factor analysis, perhaps, uh, to only come up with one conclusion. Uh, I like that. It, it has inspired my writing. Uh, and um, I'd encourage people to go check out Breaking Rockefeller, wherever good books are sold. You can even get the audiobook read by the author. Uh, and, um, you know, Bill, I want to thank you guys for having me on your show uh, for for being uh, boosters and uh, supporters of my work. And and I certainly have to say I I am deeply respectful of yours. Well, we appreciate that. And um, uh, Peter's book is an incredible corporate history, uh, an excellent international trade history, and our source for understanding the actual application of what John Sherman sought. Um, I don't think most people would know that there is utterly an opinion that was provided to end Standard Oil. And we believe this book is um, a book that will serve investors wonderfully for understanding the current unknown odds of what could come from Washington, D.C. that would affect investors globally. For our listeners, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeadcap.com. That's podcast at smeadcap.com. You can also send recommendations for us uh, on Twitter. Our handle is at smeadcap. Uh, Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.